Hi, I'm Aria Evans, the Artistic Director of Political Movement, a dance theater company that makes work from a social and political lens. And this is The D Word. I am back for season three, and we have some incredible guests lined up to talk about this year's theme, science and the mind. How do ideas like curiosity, dance and infancy, and shifting trauma through movement influence or interact with the work of dance artists? Well, we're going to dive into those conversations right now. This episode, Dr. Laura Sorelli is here in studio. Laura is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Her research interests lie in infant development, music perception and cognition across infancy and childhood, rhythm perception, pro-social development, and mother-infant song. She's here today to talk about the impact of music on babies. Laura, thanks for joining us. We're so happy to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Aria. We already mentioned your research interests, which are heavily around infant development and music and dance, but can you briefly describe your work for our listeners? Yeah, definitely. So at the University of Toronto, I direct the Tempo Lab. Um, And yes, as you mentioned, we are really interested in exploring how young children, infants, a relationship with music and dance? When do they start to engage in music? When does it capture their attention? How do they express that interest through movement? And how do they use music and dance to connect with other people, like their caregivers, their siblings, and their larger community? I'm curious just because it seems like such a cheeky name and like tempo is something that I feel like really binds music and dance together. How did you come up with that name? Yeah, so uh, it stands for the Timing, Entrainment, and Music Perception Lab. Um, And these are really exciting facets of music cognition that have captured me from the beginning. So I'm I'm really interested in how kids and babies, when they're listening to music, they're listening for that ongoing beat in the song Mm -hmm. and using that to predict when the next beat is going to happen. And that is really like the recipe for using music to bond other people. If I'm clapping along to a specific song and you are listening to the same song and you're able to clap along to that song too, then now we're clapping together. So, you know, when I started to research how children engage with music, um, one of my questions really is like, why? why? Why do we do this? Even really young babies are engaging with music and we do it throughout our lives across cultures. Um, and the social aspect of that is something that's really exciting in research right now. You know, if if the reason why we use music is because it's a tool that captures us and connects us to the people around us. And now because we are like both in training to the same underlying pulse in a song, we're in training with each other, too. then that um, can really help explain why we invest so much time and energy into this activity, really, that humans are the best at compared to every other species. Wow. It's interesting to hear you also touch upon like how we see that across different cultures and it is truly like a social habit that connects us all to this sense of like finding a common beat together. There's something about that that I wouldn't necessarily put together on my own. That's really beautiful to hear that when we think about society and our world and people and connections. Uh, Well, we've seen it before. Um, I mean, I know when I'm scrolling on social media, uh, like I will always pause and watch like 
the babies in my life or other people's babies dancing to music at an early age? And how young do babies generally start dancing when music is playing? Yeah, this is a great question and one that I'm really excited about right now as well. Um, So based on parent report, people generally report that their kids are usually dancing by about eight months. But um, there's a pretty broad range. So like some parents report that their babies start much earlier than that. Some babies really take off <laughs> and start dancing a little bit later. So it's it's similar to walking in that sense. We have this average age where we seem to see most babies are probably doing something, but there's a really wide range around that. Um, and so what does baby dance even look like mm-hmm. is another question. You know, like we see what does it mean to say that an eight-month-old is dancing? Yeah. Um, and really what we're asking parents when we when we look at these questions is like, are they moving rhythmically in a way that seems to be related to the music? They are by no means expected to be nailing the beat, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially across a range of tempos. That's something that comes later. But this really joyful urge to move to music is something that we are starting to see really before they're taking their first steps, before they're saying their first words. They are... Um, responding with movement when when they're being exposed to music, either through song or f- through musical recordings. Um, so, you know, we can ask parents when these things happen, but we can also try to measure them by getting video footage of babies moving to music. And that's something we've been exploring a lot right now, whether we have babies coming into the lab and listening to music uh, and then going back to those videos and seeing what they did. Uh, or sending parents songs to play for their kids yeah. and recording them to see what their response is. So through these different methods, we can look at those videos and identify like how much time they spend moving to music um, and if they're moving faster to faster songs, slower to slower songs, and so on. So yeah, you know, in, in my lab, we've documented that even like eight-month-olds are dancing more when they're listening to familiar music compared oh, to unfamiliar music. Yeah, and we see that through toddlerhood as well. Um, And we also see in early toddlerhood this moving faster to faster music, moving slower to slower music. And at least by three to six, if not earlier, we see that the kinds of songs that make adults really want to move, like things we call highly groovy music, like Superstition (laughs) by Stevie Wonder, for for example. These songs that you just can't resist the urge to move to. Kids are sensitive to that as well and will dance more and with more precision um, by like the preschool early school age um, level as well. Amazing. It's so interesting because as a dancer, and I feel like I hear this so commonly across this sector, we talk about like, "Mm, I was dancing before I was speaking and in interviews, I'll tell people, you know, like dance is my first language. And that feels very like unique and authentic to my experience because dance has continued to be a part of my life as I've grown. I'm curious if you see that, like, is it something that is innate in our development from like being babies that we all have that? Or do we see it in different scenarios come up based on maybe how a infant is being introduced to the world of music? It's so hard to tease apart, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> um, I will say that, you know, we, it seems like quite a human skill to listen to music and pull this information out about the timing of things and then mm. attach that to movement. In, in adult research, for example, there's lots of really cool work showing that when we're listening to music, 
not only are the auditory parts of our brain responding, but the motor cortex is mm -hmm. responding as well. So the motor system is involved just in listening, even if you're not moving. And it's even more involved when you need to work a little harder to predict when that next beat is going to happen. So I think that movement is inherently linked to music listening. Um, whether that would happen if you were like in a black box with right. no society and no socialization and no modeling. I don't know, but um, that's kind of where it comes to the point of like, you know, I think I have reason to believe that there's something innate about it, but to claim that is very bold because we would never have a lack of socialization, yes. right? And we would never conduct a study where we were <laughs> making that a reality for someone. Yeah. I mean, there is really cool work right now from um, some research groups out in Nashville looking at like genetic markers for rhythmic ability. Whoa. So that is like definitely an exciting direction where you, you know, if there are these genetic markers for rhythmic ability, then that that builds the case for this being like an innate human feature. But yeah, you know, I mean, there's we see that it's not just the babies who go on to make a career out of dance who yeah. start to dance, right? Many, many babies, most of the participants in our studies do show at least a little bit of dance, some more than others. So, you know, I think it's safe to say that the majority of babies do start to dance, you know, before toddlerhood in some capacity, but whether that's like really fostered by the people they're around and encouraged and um, whether it's something that carries through to like create this foundation of their relationship with music and dance in their future, that's the sort of thing where like I, th I both have to be involved, right? Like I think that there's these parts of our brain that exist that allow us to do these things and then the world that we're surrounded by is going to hone that or not. I want to circle back to something that you said that I, being somebody who does not have children, I was like, what's that? What is the parent report? Oh, sorry. We just, no, 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 we literally good. like give questionnaires to parents and ask them like, how old is your baby? Do they dance yet? When they, what are the songs that they listen to most frequently? When they heard this song last week, like how often did they express something through movement? So we're really just asking the parent to think back um, and report on what they have uh, observed in their child in terms of how they're responding to music. When you were speaking to our producer in one of the pre-interviews that we did for this episode, you mentioned an experiment where you conducted research with 14 months old and it had to do with bouncing and music. Can you walk us through what that experiment was and what the findings were? Yeah, definitely. So this was work that I did at McMaster University as part of my dissertation. And uh, what we were interested in was how moving to music can be a social experience, even for really little babies. Mm. Um, and so, you know, at the time, there were really cool adult studies coming out where if you moved in synchrony with another adult, you rated that person as more likable. You're more likely to trust them and want to in interact with them. And we wanted to see mm. if that sort of you know, pro-social side effect of moving with another person is something that emerges early. So in these studies, we invited 14-month-olds and their parents, of course, to come into the lab and um, participate in this study. So a research assistant would hold the baby in a carrier facing forwards, yeah. and they would just gently bounce them to the beat of Twist and Shout, which was just playing Amazing. in the background for us. It was a little MIDI version of that. Um and so then the main part is really that there was an experimenter facing this 
H2O and bouncing either in synchrony with how the baby was being bounced or this person was dancing, was bouncing out of sync, either Mm. too quickly or too slowly. So that everybody's moving, but our movements are not aligned in time with one another. So after this bouncing experience, which was about two and a half minutes long, uh, we would take the baby out of the carrier. And then the experimenter who had been facing the baby and moving either in or out of sync would do a series of little social tasks like pinning a dishcloth up on a clothesline or drawing a picture with markers. And every now and then she would pretend to accidentally drop the objects that she Mm. was using to complete the task. So like, uh uh-oh, there goes my marker on the ground. Reach for it kind of pathetically. And we would just see what the baby Mm. would do in that context. They're in this situation where this person that they just bounced with needs help. And they can take it upon themselves to provide that help if they feel comfortable doing so. Um, So, yeah, every baby had basically like nine opportunities to pick these fallen objects up and hand them back to the experimenter. And if we bounced in synchrony with the babies, they handed back more than half the objects. Whereas if we bounced out of of synchrony with the babies, it was really like only a third of the objects. And that difference we can look at statistically and show that, yes, the babies we're dancing in sync with are, in fact, more willing to help us and help us quickly too. They would help us like within the first 10 seconds usually kind of thing. So um, yeah, and we replicated this over a few different studies, a few little iterations to really dive into what's going on here. For example, we were interested in like, okay, they're helping this person more. Is that because they like this person more or are we Mm. just putting them into a really social mood? Um, So for example, uh, will they also help some random person who was just sitting in the corner the whole time reading a book and really not involved in the bouncing at all. Um, And the answer to that question is, no, they don't help that random person more. It's really targeted, specific uh, pro-sociality directed toward that synchronous partner. Mm. So, um, yeah, you know, it really, like, it, it highlights that, again, engaging musically with other people is something that even really little babies identify as a social experience. It's interesting, like hearing you say pro-social synchronicity. And for me, what you're describing also relates to building trust in Mm -hmm. a really fascinating way. Are those two things connected for you? Or do you choose to sort of like separate that sort of like pro-social synchronicity with this idea of trust? I think they're related. I mean, I think as a developmental psychologist, when we talk about pro-social behaviors, that's kind of like an umbrella term. And underneath that, you see things like helping Mm. and comforting and sharing and trust. So, you know, all of these different kinds of pro-social behavior feed into, you know, a similar narrative about trying to quantify something about the relationship between these two people. So, yeah, I mean, I think we're measuring helpfulness, but Mm. I think it's safe to assume that they are helping someone more if they do trust that person and feel comfortable approaching them. Um, We use those helping tasks in some follow-up work in my postdoc where we were looking at uh, how much the babies would help if we sang to them. And and Mm. we didn't just measure helping. We we also measured like physical proximity, like how close was the baby willing to even get to us? Oh, wow. Um, And so, you know, I think that component of trust is really in there. This is like a stranger they just met today. Yeah. It really is like an ice-breaking kind of experience. So, um, yeah, you know, I think 
if 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 this interaction with this stranger allows them to be like, okay, this person, you know, they're part of my social group. It's safe yeah. to interact with them. They know the thing. <laughs> they know yeah. how to move to the thing. Then um, it's uh, reflective of them doing these mental calculations about like who is a safe person for me to approach in this environment. And it's so fascinating to think about how that, like how that can be used as a tool and how that can be used as like a way for families to connect their child to mm -hmm. other relatives and like and beyond and in scenarios where you need to facilitate that kind of trust. What a beautiful way to offer a foundation for that. It's amazing. For parents or caregivers, would you say it's important to create a musical environment for babies? I I think that musical environments often emerge in in a in a context where there's like a relationship being formed between a caregiver and a parent. You know, we we ask parents like how much do you do these things? How often do you sing? How often do you play music? Not every single parent does these things, but many, many do report, inter, in, you know, involving these things in their everyday life. Um, I think that the really, <laughs> so I have two hats. I have like yeah. the researcher hat and then I have the mom hat. Um, and I, I I identify and I like respect that parents are just bombarded with so many like, you have to do this right. to create the perfect human. Yes. <laughs> it's a lot of pressure. Um, it's a lot of pressure. I don't think that, I don't think there needs to be this pressure that you have to involve something into your life if you're not comfortable doing it. But I think that there also should be a reduction in the pressure of like, you have to be like a musician to be allowed to give music to your children. Yeah. Like, you know, there's, um, we've had parents come into the lab where we were like, okay, we need you to sing this song and that song to your baby. And like, they're going to love it. And they're like, oh, I'm a terrible singer. And they're very embarrassed. And they're perfectly capable like yeah. they're perfectly capable singers and their baby loves it like your baby is not you know judging you harshly unless Simon Cowell as a baby <laughs> is judging people harshly but yeah I think I, I guess the take-home message, message that I'm trying to get around to is really like music is often part of early interactions mm -hmm. and we see that it can be a really really fruitful way to build a connection with your baby especially when they're quite little. And, yeah. you know, it's hard, like, especially with a newborn, for example, where they're mostly sleeping, it's hard to really capture their attention. But we see that even newborn babies will attend, they will pay attention when they're hearing song. So it's a way for you to, you know, get that response out of your child. And it's, it's really a two-way street. Like it's this dyadic interaction. If you're singing to your infant and that really captures their attention, that makes you feel good and capable mm. and worthy. And then you're more likely to sing to them again and again. And it creates this feedback loop where like, we know they are quite responsive to it. We are quite capable of doing it. Um, but yeah, I think it's really like you don't need to be signing your child up for the most expensive music lessons mm. for them to be allowed to have music. It's this everyday thing that we can really involve in our in our rituals like sing a song during the diaper mm. change to capture their attention if they're feeling really squirmy like yeah. use a song if they're distressed in the car seat to try to cheer them up um have a lullaby that you integrate into your bedtime and nap routines to connect and to convey to them like this is sleep time so song can have really important functions and those functions can um help both the parent and the infant um, know what to expect and to connect with one another. Um, I mean, related to that, 
like a specific research study that really relates to that is one where we had parents sing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star to their babies in the lab, either in a soothing way or in a playful way. These are the kind of two categories that we really see are often a part of daily attractions. And um, we looked at the infant's attention to the parent and so on, but we also looked at their physiological response. Um, so we measured what's called skin conductance by putting oh. little sensors on the baby's foot. And basically it's like if you're stressed or excited, you're, you get sweaty <laughs> and those mm. sweat glands widen and your skin becomes more conductive. Um, so we can measure that change in conductivity to capture and quantify like how stressed and excited they are or yeah. how relaxed they are. So we measured skin conductivity on both the parent and the baby while this was unfolding oh. and found that same song, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. But if the parent is instructed to sing it in a soothing way, um, we see a reduction in that skin conductivity, a relaxation effect for both the infant and the parent as the song unfolds. So it's really like both of them are experiencing this relaxation and they're experiencing it together. And that can serve great functions if you both need to take a moment or if it's ready to, time to sleep and, and things like that. Um, and play songs, on the other hand, singing it in a playful way, they're excitement levels stay high, yeah. which you would expect, and that would be the goal anyway. But also it like really captured their attention and focused mm -hmm. them on the parent. So um, it's interesting because you're talking about this sort of like intimate bond that can happen in a sort of like microcosm way. And if we were to look at the macrocosm of this research, what do you think it tells us about society as a whole? Certainly, I think that it goes back to this idea that humans have these skills that allow us to be musical, like we call this like musicality, like the the parts of us that allow us to track auditory patterns over time and make predictions about them. There are, uni there are some universals across musical systems. There are a lot of differences. So in some ways, you know, we can, we often say things like, you know, every society has some form of music and mothers around the world sing to their infants. And you can also identify, like if you listen to someone singing to an infant from a completely different part of the world, you are better than chance at identifying that that is a song for an infant. So, you know, on a big kind of global scale, music is something that is very often part of the everyday lives of really little babies all over. And if that's creating some sort of foundation and, you know, feeding into the pre-existing foundation of our ability to engage with music, then um, you can see how fostering that and encouraging that and, and allowing people to take back music, even if they're not a professional musician, to integrate that into their lives can, can help build a foundation of um, musical engagement throughout the lifespan. Um, I focus on infancy a lot, but we see that music has important impacts on social identity and emotional regulation and well-being in general throughout the lifespan. So it's something that is not just for babies either, right? And yeah. I think, you know, the, going back to the microcosm, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really important to think about when we're, when we're engaging musically with the little people in our lives, they are experiencing something, but we're experiencing that with them. So it's really um, not just about one person's experience. Amazing. I have one last question for you because I know that you grew up dancing and it's in some ways a part of your adult life, but has your relationship to dance informed this research that you've undertaken? 
Yeah. So I, I mean, I think it brought me here. Yeah. <laughs> it got me here in the first place. So that's definitely one of the the, the big parts, uh, the ways in which it informed it. So I danced recreationally mm-hmm. throughout childhood um, and into early adulthood. And I think that is probably why I really like have a hard time thinking about music or dance as independent things. Yeah. Like I, I think, and, and that's reflected in a lot of the research that I do. You know, it's, it's really hard to tease these things apart for me because it feels almost impossible to think about music listening without involving movement. Yeah. Um, so I think that's definitely informed it. I, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things too, where like my experiences dancing in an informal way and in more of a formal way in like traditional ballet class and things like that, attending dance class and having these social relationships with the people I'm dancing with. I think that also fed into my interest in the social side of what's going on here. You know, the relationships that I've built in my dance career, <laughs> the friendships are long lasting. You know, I'm, I'm cl- very close friends with many of the people that I danced with since I was a kid. So, you know, I think that that is a story that many dancers have. And I think it highlights that, there's more to it than just the fact that we were moving in synchrony every every few days. But also that probably helped us feel connected and like we were achieving the same goal and achieving that goal together. So, yeah, I'm sure that I'm sure there's a trickle down in many of my papers that uh, someone would be like, yes, she danced. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that, is there a way that people can find your research online or if they want to know more about you, where can they look? Yeah. So uh, if you look up the Tempo Lab, University of Toronto, um, we do have a lab website and there's um, some links there of papers that um, are available for the public to look at. um, And also um, a few press releases about some of the work that came out. But yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Aria. That's our show. The D Word is presented by Dance Made in Canada, a contemporary dance festival featuring Canadian dance artists who possess unique artistic visions and come from all cultural backgrounds. This year, Dance Made in Canada presents in-person programming featuring artists from across Canada in our main stage, WYSIWYG, dance on film and video, installation and photography exhibition at the Betty Oliphant Theatre in Toronto from August 16th to August 20th. You can find more information at dancemadeincanada.ca. Dance Made in Canada's co-festival directors are Janelle Rainville and Jeff Morris. Yvonne Ng is the artistic director and also co-festival director. The D Word is produced by Grace Elliott and Taylor Young. Our editor and composer is Jamar Powell. Our sound engineer is Chris Dupuis at 1990 Studios. And I'm your host, Aria Evans. Thank you to Canadian Heritage, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ontario Arts Council, and Toronto Arts Council for making The D Word possible. Find us wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to rate and review. Talk to you soon. Bye.